typically aren't really even aware of the scale of those that are missing, which is more than 80,000 Americans missing from our previous conflicts going back to World War II. And 80,000? More than 80,000. And if you add training to that, it's close to another uh, another 20,000, you know, encroaching on 100,000 people missing. 80,000 soldiers still missing in action. President and CEO of Project Recover, Derek Abbey, joins me today where he tells us why that number is so high and how they work tirelessly all across the globe to bring these soldiers home. So, let's do it. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight I see you broken and beat Head pulled down over your eyes Every part of you wants to surrender Darling, you were meant to survive With every Derek, it is a pleasure today. I, I really want you to know what a rarity you guys are because the issue that you tackle... I have never heard of anyone in my life making their career revolve around this. It's And it's like so refreshing knowing that you're out here doing this type of work. If you don't mind introducing, you know, really what, what you guys do exactly, a, a little yeah. bit of background and, uh, you know, how the organization started and kind of where it is uh, today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to kind of share our story with you. So my name is Derek Abbey. I'm the president and CEO of an organization called Project Recover. And we are a nonprofit organization that that searches for, ultimately locates and repatriates Americans missing in action from our previous wars. And our organization has been around for, in some capacity now, close to 30 years. Started as a very, very grassroots organization uh, by our founder, Pat Scannon in about 1993 were the roots of it. And um, it grew from an individual to a small volunteer group um, to the nonprofit that it is. And then we started partnering with um, incredible institutions like the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware um, that allowed us to really truly scale uh, our work to a worldwide mission. But um, yeah, it just, it started when when Pat was on a, on a group that was searching for um, a Japanese trawler that at the time, Ensign George Herbert Walker Bush had sunk during World War II, World War II, and it was sunk around the nation of Palau in the South Pacific. And Pat and the team went out there. They found it relatively quickly, and so he had time on the backside of that mission to spend in Palau. And him and his wife hired a guide, and they took them to World War II wreckage, which is what Pat was really interested in. And um, one of the first sites the guide took him to was a wing in shallow water, and. Pat quickly realized that it was a B-24 wing, American. And so he asked what happened to the wing and or what happened to the airplane, what happened to the crew. And the guy didn't have the answer. So he took it upon himself to start investigating that and quickly found out that there were a number of losses during World War II um, in and around the nation of Palau and several still missing, a couple hundred people still missing from that war. So started investigating further and going back to the country to search the jungles and the waters for those that are missing and and after a couple of years, figured out, you know, perhaps I should um, do this with other people. It's not quite the safest thing to be traipsing through. Yeah, the I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And so he created what was called at the time the Bent Prop Project. And that small group of people would um, do one mission a year, all self-funded to the nation of Palau to search the jungles and waters of for those that were missing and, and had a lot of success and, and did that for several years until about 2012. And we were in Palau for a mission and uh, representatives from Scripps Institution of Oceanography were there and representatives from the University of Delaware kind of asked, what are you guys doing? And they asked what we were doing and um, they had the technology, kind of we had the mission. And so we decided it made sense to start working together and um, they could really advance this mission and make it even safer and more efficient with the technology that we're, they were using. And um, we created what was called at the, the time a partnership, which is Project Recover. And it was a partnership between the Bent Prop Project nonprofit and those institutions. And, um, and then we really scaled that. And that allowed us to scale our mission to a worldwide mission. We've been to 21 different countries now. And, um, and multiple conflicts, World War II, Vietnam, Desert Storm. We also search for training. Uh, people that were, have been lost. Yeah, because there's a, about a couple times a year, there's always like a, a helicopter that goes down out in like yeah. San Diego or something like that. Well, well people do, people are, typically aren't really even aware of the scale of those that are missing, which is more than 80,000 Americans missing from our previous conflicts going back to World War II. And 80,000? More than 80,000. And so, if you add training to that, it's close to another, uh, another 20,000 you know, encroaching on a hundred thousand people missing. And even though those that were lost during training um, are not designated MIA um, by the Department of Defense, they're still just as missing to their families, but they're missing off of our coasts or in our Great Lakes or in our mountains and stuff like that. And so we put forth, put forth resources to search for them and hopefully provide answers like uh, the other people that we search for. So to summarize, because that is a large number, 80,000, yeah. there's 80,000 American soldiers who went to fight or including like in, in training, which said might even be higher um, mm -hmm. and that are still just never returned. Right. You know, the circumstances of war are chaotic and, um, yeah, man. Wow. you know, especially the further you go back, um, they were lost and then the war ended. They put forth the effort uh, with the technology and capability that they had at the time um, and unfortunately couldn't find everybody. Well, now um, technology is advanced and, and, you know, some of these places are safer to go to. And, and so we put forth our effort to, to provide those answers for those families. And when you think about 80,000 missing over, over the decades, that translates to millions of family members across our nation that are waiting for answers and they, and they quietly wait for answers. You know, they're not asking for any help or anything like that, but that each family um, still wants to know what happened to their loved ones, and hopefully they'll have those answers at some point. Yeah, because by now, especially the World War II guys, I mean, you're probably what um, speaking with like their grandchildren or great grandchildren Sometimes, at this point. Yeah, yeah, fewer and fewer uh, of their peers, brothers, sisters um, are around. Sometimes even children aren't around. So it's multiple generations wow. later. I mean, now we're encroaching on eight decades for some of these losses. Um, and what's that like? What's it like? Like, um, do they still have that? Like, it just happened yesterday, almost um, kind of response? Yes, uh, in some ways, absolutely. Um, and and it's not really intuitive. Uh, you know, you would think, well, it's been a long time. You know, maybe the family has gotten over, gotten over it. But MIA families don't get over the loss of their loved ones. And um, when you think about the tragic loss of somebody that's killed in battle and repatriated, there's another level when somebody is missing. 
um, that family holds on to the hope that their loved one is somehow still alive. Um, but when somebody is killed and returned to them, we go through role changes and ceremony and things like that. Um, they know what happened to that person. Um, and then they move on through the grieving process. Well, an MIA family, that grieving process is interrupted with that hope. Yeah. Role changes don't occur because they, you know, the, the person might come back. There's hope that that person will come back. And then that grieving process is interrupted. And so it's this big void and that's passed from generation to generation to generation. And we've seen over and over again, you know, families make up stories to fill that void, which are not accurate. And um, we've even seen families divided based on different stories that both sides have made up. And so providing that answer is really, really important because this person becomes a mythical, um, they take on a mythical status. You know, we see altars of some sort in each home. Um, many times, you know, the next generations are, are tasked to live up to this legacy. Yeah. A lot of military come, you know, the, they we've start seen that, up. And, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but the wound often is is still pretty raw, even though, it, you know, the person that we're interacting with may have never even met the person, uh, their relative, their loved one, which, whoever happened to be. And um, but it definitely is important uh, to each and every family that we've interacted with. It's it's incredibly important. And and not only to the families, but the, to the nation as a whole, because, you know, when you don the cloth of our nation and you swear an oath to the Constitution, we as a collective make a promise to that individual and their family that if they fall in battle, we're going to do everything we can to bring them home. And it doesn't have an expiration date. That promise doesn't have an expiration date. And yeah. so it's important to keep that promise to that family, but it's also important as collective to, to make sure that we keep our, our promise as a nation for the next generation that's going to don the uniform and swear that oath. Um, it's important that that trust is there and that they know that, that we as a collective have their back. And, and so it's, it's an important mission. Yeah, yeah. And what is, what is, why, why I'm so glad we're doing this is because yeah. I, I think yeah. a lot of people are, um, they're very familiar with the term gold star family, mm -hmm. you know, but there's plenty of, of MIA families too that, you know, take yeah. on a whole different realm of, of missing. And we've and seen I, so many of the MIA families um, really just suffer in silence. You know, um, I have interaction after interaction. That's so sad. That's so sad. It yeah. is. Um, and it's almost like, I, I, I can't really explain it correctly, but even though I've, I've, I've experienced it several times where I'm at a presentation or sharing this work with a group, and most of the time there's one MIA family, at least in the crowd. And um, I've seen it over and over where at the end of a presentation or a talk, they'll kind of walk to the front and say, you know, I don't know if this is, if I should be bringing this up or if this is important. Um, but I have an MIA in my family and like, no, this is absolutely what we do. This is exactly what we're here for and exactly what we want to hear. Yeah, you're talking the right guy right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? but, um, that, that conversation happens over and over again. And um, it's just people have, it's difficult to talk about. It's painful to talk about. And so it just kind of gets put on a shelf and um, people try to move on with their lives and some not even conscious really of the, uh, um, the impact that this loss has had on their lives. It's just not forward in their mind. It's kind of been put in the back on the shelf. And, um, but boy, you see the impact that happens when, when, when they have answers and even acknowledgement is huge. We have hundreds of family members that reach out to us all the time. And the first thing that we do is we, 
confirm and acknowledge the loss of their loved one and the sacrifice made by that individual, but also their family over the decades. And many times, this is the first time anybody's ever done that. You know, they might have received a telegram 70 years ago, and that's it. Which and, is so uh, sad. It's so yeah. sad. A telegram, you're just getting like in the in the mail or so. No, no, yeah. no face-to-face -face interaction, just so bureaucratic government sent over to you. That's just the, the worst way to hear about it. Yeah. And so, you know, and just knowing that there's people out there doing this and they, we don't have a relationship to their family. They don't have a relationship to us. Um, it, it has a pretty significant impact, even that alone. And then when you start providing information about the loss, um, or if you have the ability to execute a mission, you can imagine the impact that that has. And of course, there's been times where families have reached out to us and they've asked about their loved one and we've actually done work um, related to their loved one, or sometimes we found their loved one. And that's, that's as you can imagine, a life-changing changing event. Now, we don't actively seek out um, MIA families. Our, our process is we don't want to create any false hope or anything like that. Of course, we would never make a promise. Um, there's no guarantee we could ever find anybody. And um, we don't want to create any false hope. And so, you know, there, no, we don't want to create more harm. And so, uh, but with if and when they reach out to us, we don't keep anything from them. Um, we, we share the information yeah. that we have and, and, um, and, and what you can do there. Mm -hmm. You used the word uh, repatriated before. Now, uh, for those who don't know, uh, would you mind walking us through kind of what that process is like? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, the process of a recovery is uh, I'll start from the very beginning. This all starts typically in a basement of an archive or something like that. Um, some sort of research creates the case. We have a full-time historian on staff. Uh, Dr. Colin Colburn is constantly doing proactive research to build out um, the database that we have now, which is about 700 cases associated with about 3,000 missing Americans. And um, and then we'll assess those and execute missions based on, you know, highest likelihood of success resources available access to the area that we want to work in. Um, we'll conduct a search mission on land or water. Um, and depending on what the environment is, using different technologies to um, execute that search. If it's an underwater mission, we'll, you know, use automated underwater vehicles and side scan sonar to map the ocean floor and then dive points of interest that might be man-made, hopefully aircraft that we're looking for or something along those lines. Um, if it's too deep, we'll use robots to investigate the site. Um, and then once we find a site, we'll um, determine what kind of aircraft it is, if it's an aircraft site, and then exactly which aircraft it is. And once we do that, then we know the crew associated with it and if they're MIA or not. And from there, that point, our recovery mission will be planned and executed. Um, and that's all in coordination with the Defense POW MIA accounting agency, which is um, the DOD agency that's responsible for accounting for missing Americans. Um, we're also a partner with them. So sometimes they ask us to do portions of this, these missions to include recovery. Um, and so when we conduct a recovery mission, um, we'll collect any and all osseous material that we find, so bones or anything like that, and then other material that can assist with the identification. So you can imagine artifacts like dog tags or yeah. um, rings or watches, life-saving gear, anything like that that can assist. And then all of that material is transported back to the United States um, to a lab either in Hawaii or in Nebraska, which is where the DPAA labs are. And they 
We can't do the identification, the official identification that is restricted by Title 10 to DPAA. Um, and in those labs, they'll do a blind identification using all of that material. Um, and that also includes things like DNA, examination of dental records or bones and things like that. So if somebody broke their right arm when they were seven and, you know, we find uh, a right arm that has been broke and and it makes sense that it was a seven-year-old or something along those lines, and you know, that triangulation of data will assist with the, with the identification. And then once that occurs, um, it's pretty much the same process as if the service member was killed last week. Their family is informed. Um, and then the process moves forward from that point, how the family wants to move forward. So they'll memorialize um, them how they want. They could be put buried in Arlington National Cemetery or their local veteran cemetery or a local cemetery or whatever process they want to go through. Full military honors are provided. Um, and then it moves forward forward from there. So yeah, it's a, it's a long process, you know, that I, I explained it really quickly, but it takes a lot of time. I mean, as you can imagine, the research, oh, yeah. takes a long time. a search mission takes a long time, documentation. I mean, each one could be up to, you know, four different missions or something along those lines. Um, recovery efforts are, are pretty difficult underwater. So it takes yeah, a lot. You, of you only got so much oxygen in that tank, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, but it, it's, it's pretty amazing what we're doing now because yeah. we're going deeper in our searches as well as recovery. Um, we're, we're doing some pretty amazing stuff that I never figured we'd be doing, you know, a decade ago. I couldn't fathom what we were doing. Oh, yeah. No, just imagine yeah. what a, another decade would do. Um, yeah, I, I can't, I don't even try to pretend. I just try to uh, stay open to innovation. Um, and I get excited about that innovation when, when it occurs. And believe it or not, the the technology underwater seems to be advancing a lot more quickly than um, terrestrial technology. We are using some drone technology to put sensors on in deep jungle and things like that. But the stuff we can do underwater is pretty amazing. And for the most part on land, it's still mapping with GPS, you know, boots on the ground and machetes in hand or whatever it needs to be to find the sites and then um, document the sites that way. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how how can you, how far down can you guys see with like sonar and equipment? Are you guys searching, like scanning the area on a boat ahead of time or are you diving in and then diving in with the equipment and, and seeing how far it can go down and scanning? Yeah, so when we started this, we were using basic scuba. You know, we would get online, a group of people, and as long as your oxygen lasted, you know, you would you would search the ocean floor that way. And you pretty much weren't going below 100 feet. Um, you just didn't have time on the bottom to work and um, safety and things like that. But now we're using side scan sonar, um, the same technologies and protocols that, that people use when they're searching for super, super deep uh, sites or big losses that you might hear in the news or something like that. Um, and the robot technology can pretty much go all the way down, you know, but we have a limitation because you, we can only go to recover to a certain depth. So um, does it make sense to try and search, you know, 10,000 feet or lower? It doesn't right now. Um, but um, our colleagues at Scripps have found sites, you know, down at the thousand foot level. Um, we're finding in the two, 300 level, all sorts of different things. Two, 300 level now is where we're getting where there's a high likelihood that we'll be able to uh, conduct recovery. Um, 
and and we're keep on advance like as I mentioned we're, we keep on advancing technology that allows us to work at greater depth so um, working with the experimental dive team with the United States Navy they can go pretty deep for recovery uh, mission we don't have that capability but working with yeah. them but you know we're we're doing all sorts of innovative things to see you know can we use robots for recovery and things like that at some point in the near future um, all those things are are opportunities on the horizon uh, right now it's still pretty much we need to put a human down there to to do this recovery and it's not basic diving you know we've just recently partnered with legion undersea services which is primarily all former navy divers um, and this mm -hmm. is their realm but they can do almost anything you can imagine underwater um, navy trained them very very well and they do it, this job very very well but if we need to do a recovery where you're moving pieces of aircraft around underwater while well, that's not basic scuba you know that's not even advanced scuba that's that's um some pretty um advanced underwater work and so that's salvage work um as part of the recovery effort we're moving dredge systems and things like that around underwater so they they really need to know what they're doing and yeah. so we lean into them for our recovery missions underwater and um, and then of course having the right archaeologist on hand to to make sure all the um archaeology has been done the right way it's a uh, yeah, it's it's pretty advanced mission. It's pretty crazy. It's a lot, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a lot a lot goes into it. And um I, I like how you you brought up um uh, Palau before because you know, when I hear the word or the number eighty thousand missing, mm -hmm. it's it's hard to wrap your head around that. Just because we're so gifted with the technology and everything we have today and not being involved, especially in a world war like World War Two, where like I mean, it involved almost like every country in the in the world to some degree. Um, and Palau is like the perfect kind of explanation, I would say, um, as to why that number is so high. Because you think about it, I mean, a little little background on Palau too, and the it, the Mariana Islands that are right off the east and southeast coast of the Philippines. And we were over there in 1944. Correct me if I'm wrong, because you're probably a much better historian at this than I am. <laughs> um, we're a you know couple dozen u.s planes that got shot down a ton of american pow's um taken and either executed buried cremated or died at the Bataan death march um and that's also apparently where the world's deepest parts of the ocean exist which is you know the the philippine trench with which at its deepest point is about 34,000 feet deep and the Mariana Trench being about 36,000 feet deep, which is, to put in perspective, Mount Everest is 29,000 feet deep. Yeah. So when you put those two together and you think about the amount of chaos that was taking place in the summer of 1944, it's insane. And it kind of starts to now take that and put that in, say, Europe, put that equation around around the world and you kind of start to realize why that number is so high taken into account too back in world war ii where that just was it's also a pretty long war and you know it's it, you don't have it's it's so far from the united states it's so far from our resources too to where we can't just we, we don't have bases all over the place like that and it kind of it kind of starts to sadly make some sense on that um have uh you, you had brought up some of your inland searches too. I'm, I'm kind of interested uh, on that because um, I'm sure there's the ocean just is humongous. The bottom right. of the ocean is absolutely endless. I'm thinking inland that 
I'm thinking just from a, a commoner's standpoint, like, hey, maybe that's the easier approach. Um, and, you know, the the Bataan Death March out in, in the Philippines, is that something where, where I think it was about 10,000 Americans ended up getting killed? Is there a higher probability of you guys finding, um, you know, bodies under under the uh under the dirt there or is it the ocean that you're you've seen a more higher likelihood yeah well we um each case uh presents its own challenges right so um a lot of people think it i sometimes it's i laugh because people introduce me still that have known me for years and they're like oh this is derek he searches for lost aircraft <laughs> yeah. uh, that's an incomplete statement you know the yeah, aircraft yeah. Are means well there's a reason that so much of our work is around finding aircraft and the MIA is associated with those aircraft. So if an aircraft's been missing for 80 years, it's easier to find that big piece of metal than it is to find an individual that might have been lost. Oh, because you could probably find that in a plane too, just flying over the sea. You see an aircraft in there, right? From a different point of view. Potentially. I mean, uh, not likely, but uh, I guess there's a (laughs) chance. Um, But so, um, Lost aviators is a big part of our work, not our only part, but a big part of our work. Um, we are searching for several prisoners of war that were executed and, and interned. Um, but so finding a grave where humans have been buried and it was decades ago, um, now that adds a different complexity to, to the search. Um, you know, if you're doing an excavation of an unknown site, and you start excavating it, archaeologists will immediately be able to tell if somebody has dug there or graves were there. Um, now you're dealing with things like, okay, we can exhume a, a grave if we find the grave, and um, but then it's like the acidity or alkaline of the soil. What does that do with remains? You know, different different scenarios allow them to be preserved and others completely destroyed. Um, so just just think if it's one grave in the middle of the jungle that's been 80 years, you know, jungle grows yeah. quite a bit. It could be very, very difficult to find um, compared to an airplane in the jungle that's been missing for 80 years, which which is also very difficult to find, <laughs> but a little bit easier. Um, and so, uh, you know, individuals lost add their own complexity, but um, not impossible. I mean, this is a difficult mission. If it wasn't difficult, it, we wouldn't have it. You know, yeah. these uh, service members would have been found a long, long time ago. Um, however, you know, the development around the world um, encroaches on sites. And so, you know, when that happens, sometimes they discover sites and, and they may or may not report them, depending on who's doing the development and things like that. Um, but underwater sites, for the most part, are preserved, but some of them are also in danger. Some of them might be too deep to, to find right now. Um, and again, it's a lot easier to find an aircraft carrier at depth than it is to find a single airplane, but, um, they're also encroached upon in different ways though. So like fishing nets get caught on wreckage and sometimes fishermen have pulled them up and then just dumped them over in the past. They don't know what it is. Yeah. Don't know what it is or, or something like that. So that has an impact, all sorts of things impact hurricanes and typhoons, um, scour certain areas and absolutely destroy sites could you imagine so, fishing and grabbing a world war ii plane wreckage and just and, and throwing it out without even real oh my yeah. gosh yeah. that it's hurts happening. to even hear about yeah well that and that's what we say we say you know time is not our friend and this mission is important today 
because we're going to keep on developing with the growth of our population. Um, you know, it just time is just going to keep on ticking. And every single day, every single year makes finding these sites more difficult because they de deteriorate over time, which makes it more difficult to locate. And of course, makes it more difficult to conduct identifications and stuff like that. So land and water missions are both difficult. Um, finding an airplane and the crew associated with it is quote unquote easier than finding an individual that might be missing. Um, but each case is unique and each case presents its own challenges. Yeah. Cause also too, it might even, um, you know, when you find wreckage, it might not actually be like the, the right site either, because I know the Titanic, you know, they were finding pieces around within a mile or two and they think, okay, this is the spot. But in reality, like it is way, way yeah. East. And I feel like with planes, especially where that, that back, that tail end of the plane, when that gets hit and the plane just goes i mean you find that tail you might think all right this is the plane where is it but it's actually like two miles away which two miles we're so used to thinking oh it's a two mile drive it's quickly in the ocean two miles yeah is a is a state feels like yeah. you know or the jungle you know the jungle you, too yeah you got those you, machetes. you weren't kidding with that <laughs> yeah and there's a case right now that we're working on that's exactly it we have certain pieces but we're missing the pieces that we need um, mm. to find the individual associated with the aircraft. And we've had plenty of cases where we found a piece um, and then it took several years before we found the rest of the aircraft that we were, that we were looking for that included the crew or something like that. Have you ever found like any, um, uh, I'd say like, like either enemy aircraft or aircraft that you just, you know, we're from a war, but you just can't, put the exact pieces together for whatever reasons, maybe it was a part that doesn't have any labels or, or what? No. Well, we, we find plenty of things that we're not looking for. That's oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we found several former enemy aircraft in Palau. We found probably just as many Japanese aircraft as we found American aircraft. Um, but in other countries, we found German aircraft or other things. We found uh, different ships that, um, we weren't looking for, we found ancient sites that we weren't looking for. Um, of course, our archaeologists get excited about all of those sites. Um, no matter what, all of it is documented um, and turned over to the host nation, wherever it is that we're working. And if it's a, a former enemy aircraft or a, another country's um, aircraft, that information is also turned over to the host nation, but also shared through the appropriate channels back to the, the embassy of that nation or that nation. Um, to, uh, through the appropriate path. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What, what, um, what are some of the, um, projects you guys are, are, are working on now? If you can, if you're able to, uh, you know, indulge us. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I can't talk about specifics of cases yeah. when open, but, um, we do have a team right now overseas in the Baltic sea. Um, and it's, you know, October, so it's cold. It's not always tropics in the South Pacific or something like that. But they're, they're partnered with another organization conducting a recovery on a site that we actually located last year. Um, so they're, they got about another week left of that recovery. Um, a month ago, we were in the Mediterranean doing a search mission and found multiple sites underwater, which hopefully there'll be a press release going out on that soon. Uh, but those are MI-related sites. Um, so That's awesome. the mission continues, right? So we're consistently doing the work um, we got more recovery missions on on the books that we're getting ready to execute. We got more search missions 
on the books that we're getting ready to execute. Um, and it's no longer just Palau. It's it's around the world. We've been to 21 different countries now. Um, it's not just World War II. We've been to Vietnam. Our most me our most recent repatriation was Major Paul Abilese, um, B-52 navigator, which uh, our partners at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography located that site right before the pandemic and recovered remains from that site. And um, those have been identified and he's been repatriated oh, um, wow. to Springfield, Oregon. Um, we've done a mission in uh, Kuwait for, uh, associated with Desert Storm. Um, so it's not just World War II. That's just the biggest number yeah. in most cases. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, we're doing training uh, losses as well. So earlier this year, we had a team off, off the coast of Maine uh, looking for a Hellcat that uh, was lost up there and searching the ocean floor there. And it, it's amazing, actually, um, how advanced the technology has come over the years. I mean, you know, in 2012, we were super excited to partner with um, Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the University of Delaware and start using the side scan sonar because we could cover 20,000 meters, square meters in uh, a mission. And the resolution was about a meter at the time. Okay. Well, now that same mission, we could probably cover 100,000 square meters and our resolution now is down to a centimeter. And so when we were up in Maine, you could see the lobster traps on the ocean floor and the lines going up to the surface. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, really, really cool stuff, um, which also kind of means like, oh, do we go back and use that technology in some of the places that we've searched before to see if there's something that we've missed? Good point. Because, um, you know, a meter compared to a centimeter, is, is that's a big difference in resolution. Yeah. Um, so really exciting stuff. But the biggest thing is is, is the mission continues. We're, we're not sitting on our hands. Um, it was difficult during COVID because, you know, we couldn't access other countries and like everybody else in the nonprofit space, we just got a kick in the stomach. <laughs> and so, uh, but now we're emerging from that. We're doing missions again. Um, we're, we're working on the unilateral work that we need to do on our own, but we're also partnering with the department of defense uh, to supplement what they're doing um, and, and helping them whenever in any way that we can. Yeah. It kind of sounds like as time progresses, you not only lose out on time, which is a downer, but your equipment's getting better. So it kind of counter counteracts each yeah. other, I guess, a little bit. Well, it opens new environments, you know, so every 50 feet we can go deeper, that opens a lot of uh, area that we can search now. Um, and so, you know, and it, it just keeps on advancing. So, you know, as more robotic technology advances, um, who knows, maybe we're not even putting divers in the water. We're just using robots to do these recoveries and, and that'd be huge. So, um, you know, it's a lot safer, more efficient, things like that. Quicker. Um, it's quicker, you know, unfortunately it's not getting cheaper, but, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's important. It takes a lot to get all this equipment, all these people to these far corners of the earth, you know, the losses aren't in our backyard. So, um, it takes a little work and effort to get these people in equipment there but yeah and, you, and take into account too the the current the weather i mean you guys aren't diving in rain and, and hurricanes and so too i mean when and you're going you're going halfway across the world just like the soldiers yeah. i mean yeah no absolutely and yeah. and weather does have a a vote you know um most of the time you know we don't mind getting wet we don't mind getting hot cold other things but um you know sometimes you just can't do the mission if the if the weather's yeah you got to be safe yeah especially if you're out on the ocean you know, yeah, Mother Nature has a vote, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I was 
going to ask too, you ever doing this and, and scuba diving as long as you have, have you ever ran into any like dangerous wildlife while you're in the ocean too? Well, we, we, there's all sorts of things that are dangerous. Um, you know, wildlife is one potential thing. Um, and then just the mission itself can bring certain inherent dangers. Um, we do everything we can to minimize those. Uh, we always have medical personnel on hand. We always have the appropriate safety briefs um, and safety is the number one thing. And But, you know, in Palau, there's saltwater crocs there. There's, there is a poisonous snake, although you'd really have to kind of aggravate it and give it the little, you know, this little piece of skin because his, his mouth is so small, he wouldn't be able to bite oh, you. Um, so if you're kind of a knucklehead, you could you could get in trouble. The, the crocs are well fed, so they're not like in Australia where, you know, they're man eaters and things like that. So the good thing is, is nobody's been attacked by a crocodile or anything like that. But then you just have things like, oh, you could trip over a root or something like that or heat is a big thing in the in the in the pacific because or in the south pacific it's close to the equator it gets really really hot so you have to make sure people are hydrated taking care of themselves fatigue is a big thing over time you just get worn down so you know for the most part our missions don't really go beyond four weeks because at that point you're just exhausted in, in four weeks place. i was expecting you to say like 10 days or something four yeah, weeks no. a while, <laughs> typically we don't have any days off we're just working you know yeah. like i said we want to be efficient with uh our our resources and so we we work as much as we can when we do need a break we take a break but um yeah there's you know and then working underwater comes with its own inherent dangers um there's there's sharks out there i know the sharks aren't bothering us there's a uh, um other wildlife that's out there but um that's there's always a potential danger of some sort depending on where you go one thing i like to talk about that always catches people off guard is in palau in the jungle there's a thing called poison tree and uh, most people are not aware of it um and it's good that you're not aware of it because um I mean, as you can imagine from its name, it's not the best thing, but yeah. it's like, a, it's like a super poison ivy or poison oak that we, oh, geez. except it's really difficult to pick out the juvenile trees. Um, so, you know, we'll be walking with our guide, Joe Madenga saying, and we'll ask him, Hey Joe, is this a poison tree? And there was like five trees like that one is, and they all look the same to us. And, um, but you don't want to rub on it or touch it because the, the, um, the oil will get on you and burn you and create blisters and stuff like that. Same thing. If it gets on your clothes or your pack or something and you pick up your pack later, it'll, it'll do the same thing. Um, the more mature trees start dripping this sap and they create kind of these black holes or black patches. So, you know, okay, don't go there or sit there. Um, but yeah, that stuff can get pretty nasty and, and cause some scars if you, if you get it and you don't want to get it. Um, so we're all, you know, covered head to toe when we're in the, when we're in the jungle and there's all no, sorts of different things. That could yeah, no, that's, that's my Achilles heel is poison Ivy. Any, anything in the, the forest area that's oily, not, not, not me at all. Cause I will get that. I was just back in Jersey for the first time in like a couple months. I didn't even go in the woods. I was in my um, family's household and yeah. I got it. I got, I have no idea how, I mean, maybe I touched like some boots or something that yeah. were in the woods or something like that, but I got it. I was like, I, I, I you can't and our founder Pat Scan and are are a lot alike. You know, <laughs> I think we just set foot in Pla in Palau and might not have even been in the jungle yet, just in the hotel or wherever we're staying, and he'll start breaking out with poison tree, and we're always wondering 
how does this happen oh yeah yeah he it's just attracted to him somehow um and i always think i always think i would not have made it past a week after birth in the neanderthal days just would not have made it man <laughs> i um you know this whole time we've been talking i still can't get that number eighty thousand missing out of my head and i um i checked out your movie um called to what remains and that movie if you're watching this right now you have to watch this movie i think it's about 86 minutes, 90 minutes or so. It, it's it's not that long, but just the entire movie really sets into focus what you guys do, what the veterans have done, and really puts into focus your your missions, how much is entailed into that. You learn so much about history, and you really learn a lot, a, a lot about the U.S. military and how spread out we are all over the world in every single climate, every single different time zone. And I was trying to think, okay, how would I be able to describe this in, in one word? Because if I was like, if I, if I talk about the movie, I was like, I'm just going to ramble. It's going to go, go. I was like, let me limit it to <laughs> one word. And let me, let me see if I can go from there. And I came back with restorative. It would be the one word I would describe it. Meaning. And what I mean by that is, you know, when I'm watching it, there's a, and I'm not gonna not gonna give too much away. I won't give too much, too many, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> too much away about it. But you know, a, a scene that it just flashes to where you you know a pilot has has crashed into the ocean. You know, say back in 1944 is a scene, and they sit there for 60, 70 years, and are pulled out by an American who is intentionally searching for them, who was born probably two to three different generations later, and they're pulled out while searching for them because they are living by the same code that that pilot who crashed also lived by, which is just never leaving someone behind. And I say restorative, especially because it's not like it was a local villager or a tourist who is you know scuba diving for fun or on vacation and made the discovery like it's it's a mission you're sort of like getting bin laden you know like we will never stop looking which is what you've gotten got into a little bit before whether it's a government agency or a non-government agency and we don't care how long it takes you know somebody an american is looking for you all over the world underwater even in the air like you guys are too and and inland chopping through jungles i mean somebody is looking for you and you also learn what a badass george bush senior was <laughs> you really do i mean he's sinking japanese japanese ships at the age of 20 and i think you guys were the ones who found the ship that he sank you know, I'm, I'm giving part of that team. I'm giving yeah. way too. I'm giving way too many spoilers. I'm giving way too. I gotta stop. I gotta. I'm giving way too much about it's the movie. It's still worth watching. You didn't give too much away. It, it is. It is. I mean, if if you're if you're watching this or listening to this right now, you've got to watch it. Where where can people? Um, before we wrap up, where can people find you know not only the movie but also like information on you guys, where to find you, where to follow you? How can they help? Is it through volunteer donations, following? Yeah, we make it as easy as possible projectrecover.org projectrecover.org they can go there um and multiple things the film that you can watch a, a preview or the trailer of the film it'll take you to links to to find the film but the film is on amazon prime 
Google TV um, or Apple TV, Google Play. And then, um, of course, we want to hear from people. So if people are interested in being a part of the mission, they want to be members, um, they can go to projectrecover.org and express their interests. And then that will start the application process if that's something that they want to do or they have ability and the time to advance our mission. We're a volunteer-based uh, organization, so we re rely on people's expertise and time. Um, if there's an MIA in your family, um, we want to hear from you because we want to get any information that we can potentially have that could lead or can potentially get that could lead to the discovery of your loved one. We can never make any guarantee, but um, we might be able to uh, provide some sort of answers. And of course, if we have any information, we'll, we'll share that information. And of course, we're, we're a nonprofit. We rely on the charity of the public to execute this mission. Um, but it's not just our mission. This is every American's mission, you know? And so, but not every American can take off to, you know, the South Pacific or the Baltic Sea and traipse through the jungle or swim in the ocean or dive in the ocean. Um, but most people can support from their couch and every single bit um, advances this mission and keeping America's promise. And, and so all of that can be done at projectrecover.org. Of course, we're also on Facebook and Instagram and um, LinkedIn. So please follow us there and please sign up for our um, distribution list and you'll get updates um, when, when we make announcements of people coming home and things like that and big discoveries that we've made. Um, we want to share them with the public. It's, it's important that these stories stay alive. Um, and, and it's, you know, good news. Um, it's a humanitarian effort. It's a unifying effort. It's what people need to be seeing that's going on today in, in our community. And, and boy, you, you summed it up really well. You know, this is, a, this is a community mission. This is an American mission. Um, not partisan, nothing like that. It, it's all about the right thing to do on the human level. So, um, we'd love to hear from anybody. And, and of course, all that stuff can be done through our website, projectrecover.org. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. I, um, uh, Derry, I can't thank you enough for, uh, uh, um, coming on today, man. I, uh, pleasure. I appreciate it so, so much. I mean, what you guys do, this is probably the first time every listener has heard of an organization doing this and they probably never even thought, Oh, who, there are still people missing from the 1940s. Oh, yeah. well, there's just like an assumption like that. There's a bureaucracy looking for them, but it, in here, it's an NGO who is, these are civilians looking from the goodness of their heart, the patriotism that is just, through you guys um to to speak for everybody who's probably listening right now we love what you do huge fans i'm the real point of this podcast really hoping to just um enlarge that fan base for you guys even more um mm -hmm. because it's just it, it, it's crazy stuff i'm on the the defense pow's website too and i mean you can you can go through on their website if you want to see a little bit about maybe some some missing in action um soldiers in your state you can go on their website you can even pick a war and um it'll list the actual soldier's name first name last name rank military service service number their unit the date of loss which is so sad the day seeing all the dates of loss being like from the seven most mostly from the 70s and earlier the country of casualty and their case profile and realizing that these most of these people are 20, 21, 22 years old, you yeah. know, and what they've done, you know, being part of the, the greatest generation. I mean, it's just, we're in a completely different world now. I mean, yeah. in comparison to um, 
20 year olds back then flying these planes like like george george bush that story which it please guys watch the movie and this will this will really hit home here well it it gives me you know a, a huge feeling of gratitude when i when i look at those names and and you hit it on the head you know 20 something early 20 something years old is the average name of of those folks and i've lived two of those lifetimes so so what can i do to you know pay it back a little bit and somehow i ended up in in this role and um it's a role that i and every single team member of project recover um loves and appreciates and um we're just going to keep on doing it until we get that number as close to zero as possible yeah and and i and i always um i get a lot sometimes i i hear especially from the 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 older crowd you know you're you're mature for your age you know and i'm like i'm 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 a 29 year old man, you know. I'm like, and I always think in the back of my head, the 20 year olds, the 22 year olds flying planes, going into going into battle where they know, they know, like storming the beaches in the Philippines and in Normandy, um, they know what's about to hit them, and they still go anyway. And I I always think about that because I always think about the the greatest generation, what they accomplished. Right. way way younger than than me i mean it's 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 insane i mean I, if i was in the 40s they'd probably call me like an old geezer back then and, you know what I'm saying? Oh, <laughs> well guys, i remember when i was that age and i looked at you know those people in their upper guys 20s, pushing 30 uh, holy smokes <laughs> now i'm way way beyond that so i can't imagine yeah, what they yeah. Yeah. um no yeah it, i mean it, it's incredible i i i think about you know b24s we we've found b24s and you know, there's typically about 11 crew on that. And yeah, the senior guy was probably 21 years old yeah. flying the space shuttle at the time and um, is responsible for, you know, the 10 other people in the plane and this mission that you can't put a measurement on. You know, they're flying across the ocean, hoping that they can navigate accurately to the place that they're going to execute their mission under fire and then make it back. And then do it again the next day and then do it again and do it again. And yeah, 21, 20, 22 years old. It's amazing. Badass yeah. kids, man. Some badass yeah. kids. Yeah. 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 So we appreciate you trying to trying to look for, man. We're going to, um, you know, be by your side and, and, and watch you yeah. guys. And we cannot wait to see you guys just develop even, even further. So thank you so much for um, coming on today. And I'm, I'm sure we'll see you down the road. I hope so. Yeah. We'll have us back for some positive updates, which we got. We're going to have some really good news on the horizon that we're excited about. Little teaser, little teaser. Yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for having me. With every star.